Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So we've come to the practical end in our series on spreading the gospel. And over the next couple of weeks, I will elaborate on the various ways or methods of doing so. Now, I understand that sharing the gospel can be hard. And speaking up is certainly not for everyone. So in addition to the word-based methods, we'll include other methods, chiefly hospitality. <laughs> hospitality in particular is something everyone can do. You can put food on the table and you can invite your neighbors into your home. Now it might take some cleaning up. It does in our house. Got a one-year-old, but it's certainly doable. And I think hospitality is especially important for us but I want to start this morning with a word-based method because the gospel is a message, and it must be articulated. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, I certainly understand the sentiment. Actions speak louder than words. And when our actions deny the gospel at home, among our family, at the workplace, among co-workers. It doesn't matter what we say. But that doesn't change the fact that we do have to say something. It's not an either or, but hopefully it would be both and. And as the scriptures say, Romans chapter 1 or chapter 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So our example is important, don't get me wrong, but ultimately it's the spoken word of the gospel that is the clincher. That's what ultimately brings someone to faith. Now you read Acts and you find that it emphasizes the church's unique way of life. Outsiders saw the church, particularly how they loved one another, and it says they held them in high esteem, Acts 5.12. However, you also see in Acts that when the kingdom takes ground, it's because the gospel takes ground. The word of God kept on spreading, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. The word was taking ground and spreading, and along with it, many were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. So, we're going to talk a lot about hospitality, a lot about basic relationship, inviting your neighbors into your home and loving them. But before we get there, I want to encourage you not to forget about spreading and speaking the gospel. Though it can be intimidating, though we're often fearful of it, I want to encourage you not to be afraid to speak the word because... Your neighbor is not going to become a Christian through osmosis. At some point, he or she needs to hear the message of the gospel. Now, it starts with relationship. And now more than ever, but mere relationship cannot save. So we don't want it to be an either or, but a both and. And I want to talk to you this morning about the one side, about one side rather, of that either, or that both and divide, specifically how to share the gospel message. And again, it's easier than you think. How many of you can tell a story? 
Now, if you can tell a story, and it doesn't even have to be a good one, you can share the gospel. Because at its most basic level, that's what sharing the gospel is. It's the greatest story ever told that we're laying before people. So I want to do three things this morning. First, I just want to talk about the importance of stories. And then second, I want to talk about the biblical story. And lastly, I want to talk about how to tell the biblical story. So fairly straightforward. But let's begin with the first of those, which is the importance of stories. In my study this week, I came across an author who said, he who tells the best story wins. He who tells the best story wins. Meaning, we're not primarily in a moral struggle, nor are we primarily in an intellectual struggle. Rather, we're in a struggle to tell the best story. Why do other religions and ideologies and political movements attract such numbers and devotions while the church, and devotion rather, while the church is emptying out at a historic rate? Is it because they find our message to be false or unbelievable? Is it because the church is not credible? There may be some truth to those, but I think ultimately it's because those other movements are telling better stories. Stories that have explanatory power. Stories that people find compelling. And stories that make sense of their own lives. Now in the end, all stories are trying to answer four fundamental questions. Every big story that's out there is trying to answer four fundamental questions. They are, why am I here? What has gone wrong? What is the solution? And what will restoration look like? They're all trying to answer those four basic questions. And the story that can do that the best is the story that wins out. It's the story that gathers the most people to it. So take, for instance, some of the most influential movements in our day. They are providing answers to these questions. They are helping people to understand the most basic meaning of their existence. So, for instance, there's the story of progress that so many in the West believe in. It says that the human race is on an ever upward trajectory till we arrive at utopia. It's the kingdom of God without God. Now, it goes like this. We started as superstitious savages, but as we leave superstition behind, as we leave religion behind and these things that ensnare us, and as we embrace technology and science, we get smarter, we get richer, and we get healthier. I'm not sure if you've heard the name Steven Pinker, but he's the chief prophet of progress. Eventually, the story goes, we'll probably leave the planet and we'll colonize the stars or we'll find some way to live forever or we'll even download our brains onto silicon chips and live in the cloud. Now, we shouldn't mock, however crazy that sounds, because that story of progress is one of our main competitors. For very many people, maybe your neighbors, maybe people in your family, 
that story is more compelling and plausible than the story that we're telling. Now, alongside progress, I'll just do a few more here. There's the story of personal authenticity. It goes like this. In the beginning, there were no rules or standards placed upon the human race. Each person was free to be themselves, to live life according to their own making, and it was how things were supposed to be. Everything was good. No one to tell you what to do, only free and autonomous individuals. But then, and this is the ver their version of the fall, but then we invented this thing called society. And we chained everyone down with laws and morality and custom. The individual is basically good. It's society that's at fault. And to be free, to liberate people, what we have to do is dismantle oppressive structures and turn people loose once again to be themselves. Does that sound familiar? The story of personal authenticity. It's the basic story that most Americans live by. And of course, it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. And I've been meeting with the Mormons lately. Um, they've been coming to my house, and uh, we've been sort of in a sparring match. Uh, they're very friendly and kind, and I like them. And I've gotten to know their story. Now, not their story as individuals, but the Mormon's story. And I don't find the Mormon story very convincing, but many people do. And I think the reason why people find it convincing is simply because they tell a story. They gave me a little pamphlet, and you open it up, and it walks you beginning, middle, and end. This is why you're here. This is what life on earth is all about, and this is where it's going. You were a, well, we don't have to get into it. it it's, whatever. It, it borders, at least in my mind, it's like, I, it's, it seems, um, I don't want to be rude, but it seems absurd. But it's not hard to, to see how people would find something that, like that meaningful and relevant to their lives. The questions that they're asking are being answered. Why am I here? What, what is this all about? Very clear answers to those questions. And on and on we could go. There's the sexual liberation story. There's the racial liberation story. There's the story of the American dream. There's the Islamic story and the Buddhist story and etc. and etc. And what we have to realize is that for most people, these stories are more compelling than the Christian story. John Stott, the great pastor and theologian, put it this way. Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but they perceive it to be trivial. People think that the Christian story is about moralism. That it's about keeping rules at the end of the day. They think it's about escape from this world. That it's for people who can't handle the rough and tumble of life and who need some sort of mechanism of coping in the form of heaven. Or they think it's about a political agenda, right? Uh, an avenue for politics. People are disinterested and not impressed with the Christian story as it is told. And of course, who can blame them? 
we have to get the story right. Because whoever tells the best story wins. And, big surprise, we've got the best story. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he called the Christian story um, the true myth. Now, when we hear myth, that sounds alarming, right? We think of falsehood. That's not what Lewis meant. When he meant myth, what he meant was those ancient stories of old that people told to try to make sense and meaning of life, right? So if you were a Greek, you'd sit around the fire and they would tell stories of gods and men and of great deeds and of honor and heroism. And these were meant to make sense of what life in the world was. Now, ultimately, they were false, right? They weren't true. Now, C.S. Lewis says the Christian story is the true myth. He says the resurrection of Jesus is myth become fact. It's one of those stories that provides everything that we're looking for, except the Christian story, the greatest story ever told, happens to be true. So that leads us to our next point. What is the biblical story? Now, historically, the biblical story has been broken down into four sections. So it's one story that comes in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And those four parts answer the four questions that every grand story is attempting to answer. Why am I here? Creation. What went wrong? The fall. What's the solution? Redemption. And what does restoration look like? Restoration or the kingdom of God. So the story, let's just work our way through The story begins with creation. In fact, the story begins with God. And it says that the universe that we inhabit is not a product of sheer chance, but deliberate action. God created everything and everything in the universe, including you and me. So someone would ask, why am I here? Well, the biblical story answers, because God wanted you here. God did not have to create, but he chose to. He wanted to share life, his glory with creatures distinct from him. So you see, when we just start with creation, we're already worlds apart from the stories that are told in our culture. No, humans are not an accident. No, life is not meaningless. There is more than mere matter and atoms bumping into one another. Behind it all stands a creator immensely powerful, immensely wise, and as we will see, immensely good. And this creator makes us humans. The biblical story says that he creates us in his own image. That means that all creatures, of all creatures on the earth, humans are capable of knowing God and of having a relationship with him. And this is depicted in the Garden of Eden the river of life that runs through the garden to water it, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and God's presence going about in the garden in the cool of the day. This is what humans are created for, the story says, to know God, to have a relationship with God, and to delight in Him. And because humans are created in God's image, we have dignity something that so many today struggle with and wrestle with. In some small way, 
we humans are like God, and that marks us off from other creatures. Human life and every human person is valuable, immensely valuable. And it's not a value that we give ourselves. It's a value that comes from God. He crowns us with glory and majesty, the scripture says. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. So no, humans aren't robots, right, who are programmed to, by their genetic code to respond a certain way. No, we aren't merely self-aware animals. Humans are special in the world, and we are special to God. And God created us humans to live in relationship with one another. It's not good for the man to be alone. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. God split the human race in two, man and woman, to bring it together again. From man and women come children, and then grandchildren, and then great-grandchildren. Families become clans, clans become tribes, tribes become peoples. Humans were not meant to be at war with one another like we are, but to live together in peace and justice. God created one family because from them he wanted many families to bless them and to prosper them upon the earth. And then God gave humans something to do other than making families, which is quite enough work. But that was to make civilization. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God said to the man and the woman, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God wanted trees to become homes. He wanted raw metals to be turned into instruments and tools. He wanted rough stones to be transformed into beautiful jewelry. Humans, God made us to take the earth and to glorify it, to harness its raw potential in good and beautiful ways. So he gave us the earth not as a resource to be exploited, but as our home to be cultivated and loved. And when God finished his work, he looked upon it, and he called it very good. Genesis 1.31. All in all, God created us to be in harmonious relationship with him, to be in harmonious relationship with ourselves, to be in harmonious relationship with one another, and to be in harmonious relationship with the created order. And the word that the scriptures use to describe this is called shalom, or peace. Now, it's more than peace as in the absence of conflict. It's a word that the biblical authors use to say that everything is as it should be. That all is well and true and good. Everything in the right place, shalom. So Christianity tells this amazing story in which life in this world is fundamentally good. That beneath the terrible brokenness we now experience lies something precious to God, something created by Him. The Christian story in a world where there's conflict between the genders says there is goodness in male and female. The Christian story in our culture where marriage is falling apart and families are crumbling says marriage and family is good. It's created by God. It says raising children 
the, the work of raising children, of having a career, of culture, of all that it means to be human creatures is good. God created these things. These are inherently noble and meaningful. So that's the first chapter of the story, and only if we were able to stay there. Now, it's important that we tell this part of the story, because here's why. Typically, our story has a middle, but it has no beginning or end. Typically, the way it goes is we have the fall, and we have redemption, but we don't have creation, and we don't have restoration. We tell people, you are fallen, and you can be saved, but we don't tell them what they've fallen from, that original vision in Genesis that's very good. And we don't tell them what they can be restored to. It's simply a message, you sinned, now be saved. It's a story without a beginning or end. So including this first chapter keeps the story from becoming lopsided, and it keeps it a story. Why am I here? And Genesis says, this is why. Because God loved you and created you and wanted to have a relationship with you, to be in a world where all is at peace. It's so beautiful, and nothing, no other story that people tell can come close to the original beauty of Genesis. Now that leads us to the second chapter in the story, the fall. God did not create evil, but it entered into his creation. And the scriptures don't tell us exactly how or exactly when but there was a rebellion in the heavens. A host of spiritual beings, one chief among them, turned against God and his purposes for creation. And they desired the mastery of it for themselves. Not to bless, but to dominate and to destroy. Now again, this is an element of our story that most modern people will scoff at. But it's an element of our story that we cannot leave out. Other stories out there have versions of the fall. They say, this is how things were supposed to be, and here's what went wrong. The invention of private property, for instance, or the invention of society, or so on and so forth. And without exception, in all of these stories, the blame is laid at the feet of other humans. And these stories teach people to say it was them and not us who caused this mess. And it's not hard to imagine when you tell that story and when you lay the blame unreservedly at the feet of a certain group of people, how that can provide justification for some very evil things. Now, the Christian story says otherwise. Yes, humans are responsible, but we are not ultimately responsible. The devil and his angels are. Human evil is real, but it's derivative. Of course, that doesn't let us off the hook. Though we are not the initiators of the rebellion, humans did join in. And as a result, sin and death entered the world. The good thing that God had created, his kingdom of life and peace, was corrupted by death. And that death, bled into every aspect of creation. Humans were separated from God. 
banished from his presence in the garden and sent to inhabit waste places. And that movement from garden to barren land to the howling wilderness signifies the spiritual condition of the human race. We are lost. We are exiled. We are people who were created for the garden but now find ourselves in a land that bears nothing but thorns and thistles. And when that one fundamental relationship between God and humans is broken, so are all others. Humans first become estranged from themselves. In Genesis, what happens to the man and the woman when, they, when their eyes are opened? They recognize that they're naked and they hide to cover their shame and their guilt. They can no longer face themselves nor stand in the light of God's presence. And again, it's easy for modern people to poke fun at this. Covering themselves up with fig leaves, hiding in the garden. But how true it is. That sort of inability to look at ourselves and to stand in the light of God's presence is the source of every insecurity, of every fear. It's that original shame that, that can't be covered up that leads us to all these, well, all these ways of self-righteousness and of justifying ourselves and so on and so forth. The biblical story hits it right on the head when it comes to the human problem. Now the next domino to fall is our relationship to one another. Sin enters the world, and what does Adam do? He blames Eve. God tells them now that marriage will become an arena of struggle. Your desire will be for him, but he will more or less dominate you. And their firstborn son, Adam and Eve, what does he do? He murders his brother. What's the source of conflict in marriage and strife within family? What's the source of war and of racism and all other social evils? Why do the strong dominate the weak? Well, the Christian story says, well, it's not due to a lack of education. It's not due to a lack of economic opportunity. The problem is not society itself, but something more original. Ambition, hatred, competition, discord, these things have entered the human heart and distorted our relationships. And lastly, death is introduced into the relationship between humans and the earth. The ground no longer yields its strength to humans. Its life-giving sustenance will come only through back-breaking toil. And we, rather than respecting the thing that God has made, dominate it. The natural environment and all creatures therein are exploited for our purposes. One author put it this way, All spheres of life, marriage and family, work and worship, school and state, our play and art, bear the wounds of our rebellion. Sin is present everywhere, in pride of race, and arrogance of nations, in the abuse of the weak and helpless, in disregard for water, air, and soil, in destruction of living creatures, in slavery, deceit, terror, and war, in worship of false gods, and in the frantic escape from reality. We have become victims of our own sin. God created things good, but sin entered the world, and this is the result. Now, of course, this is the hard part of the story. 
to tell people not only what's wrong out there, but what's wrong in here. But it's a gift that our story communicates in our culture that no longer tells the truth about what's wrong with humans. What if you had some illness? Let's say you had cancer that's treatable but terrible. And the doctor, because he doesn't want to cause you emotional pain, and because he himself is uncomfortable, just says, you know what, go home, get some rest, take some medicine, and you're going to be all right. It's just something, you, you, it's a little thing you'll get over. That's absolute malpractice, right? We would sue that doctor for what he's done, and he would be fired. The gift that the Christian story brings into the world is to say, here's the diagnosis. This is the way things are. That's a hard truth, but it's a good thing. It's liberating because that's the road to restoration, at least the first step. So the human problem then, what we're saying, can't be remedied by more self-love, right? Sorry, Generation X and Millennials. It can't be uh, fixed by more self-control, right? Sorry, Boomers and beyond. Um, it can't be fixed by better education or better jobs. It can't be fixed by uh, government or any other human institution. Those things might be helpful in a superficial sense, but they cannot remedy the deep problem. The problem is sin, and it's terminal. That's hard, but that's a gift we bring into the world. It's important. And that brings us to the third not the final, but the climactic chapter in the story, which is redemption. God has exiled humans from his presence, and he puts us under his judgment, but he's not given up on us. Where sin abounded, the scripture says, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, grace abounded all the more, literally superabounded. God set his love on what he created, chiefly us humans, and though we deserve it, he was not willing to let us, us perish forever. And so he sent his son. And God's precious son, Jesus, came on the scene of human history announcing a kingdom. Telling everybody that God is taking over and that he's acting to put things right just like they were in the beginning. And then Jesus went around reversing sin and death. He went around healing disease, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, condemning unjust and oppressive rulers, forgiving sin and even raising the dead, literally turning back the work of sin and death in the midst of Israel and these people's lives. And he gathered his disciples around him, and he was like a new king in the land. The people even tried to make him one. They wanted to take him by force. But at the height of his ministry, he was put to death, Jesus. He was hated by those in power. They feared him and his message. But this was God's plan. God turned the darkest day in history into the redemption and restoration of all things. In Jesus' death, God was putting an end to sin, putting an end to death, and he was reconciling the world to himself. He poured out his wrath against sin once and for all, condemning sin in the flesh, in the body of Jesus, 
and then raising his son up in victory. And then God sat Jesus down at his right hand as ruler and Lord over all things so that now nothing can defeat his purpose. And the result of this is that those relationships in the beginning that God created us for are restored through Jesus. Because of what Jesus does, has done, he brings us back to God. He makes us sons and daughters, born again. He takes away our guilt and our shame, and he gives us a new identity, chosen and beloved. He brings us out of the shadows and into the light. He restores us to one another. The church is to be a new family and a new community where human relationships are put right. And ultimately, the whole created order will be renewed. And the shorthand for all this is Jesus is Lord. He reigns from heaven to bring all things under his life-giving dominion. Which at last, and we'll move quickly here, brings us to the final chapter in the story, Restoration. Because Jesus is risen and seated at the right hand of God, God's purpose will prevail. No matter what tribulation, no matter what trial comes upon the world or us in our personal lives, the seed of the kingdom has been planted and it works quietly in the dark soil, unnoticed, till one day that seed sprouts and the new thing emerges. God's Son will come to visit the earth again. He will come once more to the human race. And He will settle accounts. He will render justice once and for all. He will render judgment, rather, once and for all according to true justice and righteousness. He will crush the oppressor with the rod of his mouth, Isaiah 11. He will vindicate the helpless. He will reward each person according to their deeds. And he will remove from his kingdom all stumbling blocks and things that offend. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And he will at last purify his own people. And then the world will bloom. Winter this winter of sin and death will have passed and springtime will have come. As we read, there will be no more tears. Psalm 95, the mountains will break forth in singing and they will clap their hands. The trees will clap their hands. Isaiah says, the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The wilderness will bloom like Eden. The nations will stream to Jerusalem and learn war no more. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the cow and the bear will graze together. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who mourn will be comforted. And the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And as we read, he who sits on the throne will say, Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the greatest story ever told. That's the true myth, as C.S. Lewis said. That is our great hope, and it's good news indeed. Something that we must tell and spread abroad for the joy of it, for the goodness of it. Now, that leads us to our final point. 
how to tell the story. Now, there's quite a lot to say here, but all I want to do is just simplify things. Really, my hunch, this is what I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's my hunch, so I'm sticking to it. Um, my hunch is that actually telling the story is not that hard. Right? Most of us know that. What I just said there is like common knowledge for all of us. And I didn't really, wasn't, my goal wasn't to re-inform you, but it was just to stir your heart once again. Telling that story is not hard. The hard part is getting to that point. Now it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, evangelism by osmosis. Most of us are sort of content to wait for the perfect opportunity. For some lost soul to come nibbling on our line, and then what we end up doing is waiting and waiting and waiting until the opportunity never comes, or it comes and it goes. Now, I think the issue is not that we don't know what to say, but that sometimes we lack the courage and the compassion to say it. Now, I don't mean to be harsh, but I do mean to be honest. Now, we'll talk more about how to share the story in coming sermons. We'll talk about hospitality. We'll talk about conversation. We'll have plenty of time for that. But right now, I just want to encourage you guys to do one thing, okay? One thing, and that's to pray. I'm not asking you to go knocking on your neighbor's door yet. Right now, I'm asking you to pray. Now, without question... It is God's will, it is not God's will, I should say, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. His desire is for the lost to be found. Indeed, he, in the person of his Son, in the power of his Spirit, is the one who seeks for the lost. And when he finds them, Luke 15, all heaven rejoices. Now, prayer is the opening up of our hearts to God's stubborn and persistent will to see the lost found. When we clasp our hands in prayer, it opens the door, if ever so slightly, for His great compassion and desire to see people come to know His Son Jesus it opens the door, if ever so slightly, for that to work upon us, for that to transform our hearts. So again, I'm not asking you to go and canvas the city. I'm asking you right now just to pray. That is, to take whatever's in your heart and to offer it up to God and asking Him to give you what you don't have. So just pray. And allow God's heavy love for the world to weigh upon your heart. Right, a love that would send its own son to die for enemies. So allow that love to weigh upon your heart. Let God bring the brokenness of things into your view the shattered lives, and the devastated childhoods that are all around us. Allow Him to bring that to your view. 
None of it escapes his concern. He sees it all. Ask him to show you what he sees. And then ask God to share his own sorrow with you. It won't happen, really, without a burden. You know, Paul says in Romans 9, I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my brethren. Because he had that deep burden on his heart, he was actually, therefore, so motivated to witness and to lead people into repentance and life. So ask God to share his sorrow with you. And then ask him to show you the fury of his own love. Ask him to show you his unbreakable determination to save. That nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes. Ask him to show you, right, how that love issues in sending his own son to the world. And then ask him to give you a glimpse of the glory of the coming kingdom. But most of all, I'd just like to encourage you, ask him, ask God to reveal to you his own love for his own son. Ask him to reveal to you how surpassingly precious and dear Jesus is to him. How he wants Jesus to be exalted in every heart, worshipped in every home, Lord of every people's tribe, tongues, and nation. That's the thing that most concerns God, is to see his son high and lifted up. Ask him to give you that own desire. That you would do anything, cross any lands, talk to any person, whatever, to see Jesus exalted. And then ask him to show you, and we'll end here, how these things converge in your own life. How from the depths of his love, he sent his son for you. That you were also lost, wandering, without a home, pursuing all these foolish and evil things, but he found you, he searched for you, and brought you near. Now these elements of communion are not bare elements, but the Apostle Paul says the cup and the bread are a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. That is, the body which was broken for you, the body that Jesus assumed in his incarnation, that the body in which he bared your and mine, and the whole world's sin that was broken for you. The blood which was shed to remove sin, to take away wrath, to save us from hell. These elements communicate God's dying love to you, to bring you, a lost and helpless one, back into his fold. So I encourage you, come and get the elements now. Just take some time to, re, to receive, again, a love that was broken for you, a love that was poured out for you, a love that seeks and saves. I'll lead us in just a moment.